0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. The last two verses will be our focus this morning. Here we have two verses that really serve as a capstone to the magnificent teaching that we have seen the author of Hebrews give uh, in these uh, recent chapters, in particular, about the priesthood of Jesus Christ. In particular, the fact that he is our mediator, he is our go between, he is the reason why we could stand before God the Father because of the blood of God the Son sacrificed on our behalf. And so the last two verses, again, uh, capstone this whole idea, this concept, but it also touches on a really a larger common biblical theme, death and judgment. And when I first told my wife of the name of the sermon, death and judgment, she said, couldn't you not think of something just a little more positive than death and judgment? I thought, no, it's perfect. And it really, her question illustrates how you... React when you hear the words death and judgment is totally dependent on your relationship with Christ, or it should be. Hear God's word, Hebrews 9, verse 27 and verse 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, just as you did with your disciples on the road to Emmaus, open our minds to understand the scriptures. For it is in your name that we pray. Amen. Have you ever thought about the fact that uh, much of what happens in life has at least two opposing perspectives on that event? The same event can be devastating to one party, yet completely glorious and tremendous for the other party. Think of just the natural world. Uh, not too long ago, I happened upon, I was at a, a, a farmer's field, and I saw a dead steer laying there, and it wasn't a pretty sight, as you can imagine. And I thought, and the farmer explained how this, this uh, steer died, and it was a painful death. And I thought, well, that's just, what a terrible thing. But I also noticed it was being eaten by various things, as you can imagine. I thought, what an irony. You've got this terrible death that happened to this animal, while other animals basically get their survival from it, feast on it. Tragic for one, but tremendous for the other. Think of other uh, things like this. When a hurricane, like we've seen, or a furious storm hits a city, it's tragic, and it's difficult for the citizens and their property. Yet, for construction workers and repairmen, a couple of who I know from the Kansas City area now will have work for months, can provide for their families for a steady uh, period of time, unlike times that have preceded. It's hard to know how to feel about that. Same event, but really two different perspectives. A heavier, steady rain could be exactly what the farmer needs, yet that same rain could mean a terrible flood for those living on the banks of a river. The same event can be devastating to one party and tremendously glorious for the other. I would submit to you, my brothers and sisters, there are two sure events that every human being will undergo. These events can be devastating to one party and tremendously rewarding for the other. All human beings will physically die. All human beings will stand before the judgment of Almighty God. And very simply, what we have before us in these two simple verses, of course, with all its backdrop, Jesus Christ provides us with a glorious outlook on death and judgment, depending on your relationship with him. There are two great certainties gained from this text. Look at Let's look at the first one in the first part of verse 27. We all have an appointment with death. Verse 27, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes Judgment. Please notice, it is appointed for man to die once. Man being general humanity. No one escapes this. Man will die. It is appointed for man to die. Here's the fact. Every hour, 5,417 people die. That's every hour. Consider recent events and their staggering death tolls and how quickly death has come upon those who were victims. And it could be any one of us. The tsunami in Asia last year... It's thought to have caused the death of half a million people at least. Can you fathom that amount in really a 24-hour period or less? Even the hurricane, a much smaller death toll here, but nevertheless, at least a 1,000 people really within, again, a small period of time died. Have you been following the recent earthquake figures? It's staggering. 40,000 people 40,000 people died at 9.30 in the morning, they're sitting down to breakfast, their kids are at the desks at school, and 40,000 people within a 10 to 15 second period lose their lives. Just yesterday, to break it down even more particularly to individuals, just yesterday a 28-year-old professional basketball player in the prime of his life suffered cardiac arrest and was dead before paramedics arrived. Let's just be honest. We all have an appointment with death. Only two individuals ever avoided the experience of death, Enoch and Elijah. Those who are alive at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ will also be spared of the process of death, but the rest of us, probably the vast majority of us, definitely the vast majority of all who have ever lived, have an appointment with physical death. Your perspective on death depends entirely on your relationship with Jesus Christ. An early church father, Tertullian, said it well. It is a poor thing to fear that which is inevitable. First realize that death is by God's authority. Look at verse 27 again. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, the same word that's used in the book of Acts, is many as were appointed unto eternal life believed. Appointed is a statement of God's decreatory sentence. It is by his sovereign will. And although it's inexplicable why people die to us, and it's very traumatic and tragic to us, and legitimately so, it is never, ever outside the plan of God. There really is no such thing, truly, as an accident. Physical death itself came into creation when man sinned against God and died spiritually. You remember Adam and Eve were given a prohibition not to eat of the tree in in the garden, or they would surely die. Now, what that meant particularly is that their spirit, their soul, would die. And then their body, being made as a body-soul nexus, united to the spiritual life, began to die over time, slowly, degrading. That's when death entered. Now, wonderfully and graciously, Jesus Christ defeated death, that is spiritual, eternal death, on the cross. He restored spiritual life to dead people. You and I, but still, even us who are born again still will die a physical death unless Jesus comes before. A little more than two years ago, I was invited by the Kansas City Star to contribute to the Voices of Faith column in their Saturday Faith section. A relatively pathetic section, if I might say. At any rate, not just because I'm sour that they've never asked me again. However, I've read and read to much depression what people that are supposed to be religious leaders think and say. In this column that I was to contribute to, uh, spiritual questions are posed to representatives of two different religious faiths. The question was posed to me and my counterpart, who is an adherent to Christian science, which is not Christian at all, I hope you know. Uh, It's more of a New Age type uh, religion. And the question, which was flawed as it was, said this. Why are we to fear death when it's the only gateway to our reward for suffering the pain and turmoil of earthly life. Now, the question's flawed to begin with. How do you possibly answer that biblically without coming across as negative? Can you imagine? Well, listen to what my counterpart wrote. She wrote, I believe there is nothing to fear about death, for death is, in reality, no part of life. Now, if you have any idea what that means, let me know. I've read it over and over for two years, and I have no idea what it means. She goes on to say, and cites a biblical passage. In Genesis 1, the spiritual account of creation is set forth. I love what God says about man, she writes. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God saw everything he had made, and it was very good. An incredible citation of scripture on this Christian scientist's part. As God is spirit, she says, man is therefore good, eternal and holy spiritual, not material, as presented in the Adam and Eve allegory. Okay, the allegory part lost me, but at least she quoted chapter 1 of Genesis. But she totally skipped what we all need to know. Genesis 3, the entrance of sin and death, is totally looked over, and everything is good in her mind. Now, I wasn't given what she'd say beforehand, so I went on to write myself, and this is what I said. Death is a terrible aberration to God's original creation. Death is in no way a reward but a vivid reminder of all that is broken in the sin-torn world. Earthly pain and turmoil are also indications of how askew the world is. Neither death nor human pain characterize the original creation. Death entered human experience when our predecessors willfully rebelled against their creator by eating from the one tree that was forbidden. When Adam and Eve sinned, their souls died immediately and their bodies followed suit gradually. Since our first parents, every person is born dead spiritually and continues in a state of perpetual physical decline towards physical death. Relief from the fear of death comes only when our souls have been made alive. Now, do you know that I got at least a dozen emails scolding me for being judgmental, narrow-minded, and part of the problem in today's world? I'm serious. Needless to say, the Kansas City Star has never asked me to contribute again. All this to say that once sin entered, physical death is and became and is the just sentence. It's the just sentence that all human beings will experience. Death is appointed by God. Ecclesiastes says it well, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. Death is our common destiny, physical death. Death is the great equalizer, the leveler. One of my favorite stories is Alexander the Great in all his many conquests is war- moving through a place where he had, they had laid waste to this, this land and had taken hold of it, and there is a pile of bones. And Diogenes, the philosopher, is looking at the pile of bones. And Alexander goes to Diogenes and says, What are you looking at? What are you thinking? And Diogenes replied to him, I am looking for that which I cannot find, my dear Ale- Alexander, the difference between your father's bones and those of his slaves. Death is the great equalizer, no matter how Great, this world declares us to be. In a more biblical example of this, King David, just before he's ready to die, telling Solomon about taking the kingdom, says this, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man, Solomon. I am about to go the way of all the earth. David, King David, knew that he was mortal, that he would die the way of all the earth. Please notice something else from verse 27. Not only is death by God's authority, it is also final. Verse 27 again, and just it is appointed for man to die once. We die once. There is the exception of those people like Lazarus and others that Jesus and the apostles raised. They had to die twice. Think about it from that perspective. However, they still died. They were still who they are. They didn't come back in some other form. They didn't change forms or Uh, ...come back as some other creature. In in Hinduism, Buddhism, and modern New Age movement... ...various other religions that teach... uh, ...that after death we are simply reborn... ...in a different form. Higher or lower depending on how we live. It's called reincarnation... ...or even uh, more popularly now... ...the transmigration of the soul it is called. Easterners who believe in uh, transmigration of the soul... ...would often refuse to kill even a cockroach... ...because of their belief that the roach... ...could have been one of their ancestors... Westerners who believe in reincarnation don't have the same regard for animal life, we might say. Basically, their belief is that we only come back as somebody else in a past life. It says that man died once, then the judgment. And really, this uh, idea is a man centered, man invented system that really supports a caste system of poverty that just gives someone something to look forward to who is destitute in this life. Now, death is final. Man dies once. It's by God's authority. Let's consider for a moment regarding this great certainty. Several things we can take away from this. First of all, let me just ask you this question. What are you doing, my brother, my sister, that will live on after you die? And I'm, I'm totally serious. I could not be more serious. What are you doing that will live on after you die? Are you investing your time and effort into things that are eternal, eternal? You know, only those things that are done in connection with Jesus Christ are eternal. Those are the things that we should, at least in these confines, admit this is what we should be spending our time and putting our efforts into. Are we investing our time into people and things that will live forever? That is, a person is given an eternal soul. Are you investing in people or things or ministries or institutions that build up people? People whose souls will live forever. Be honest about what you spend your time on, what you're trying to accumulate in this life, what you're trying to accomplish. And really, let's ask ourselves as a church, especially as we're ready to build a building, on the cusp of really what I think is exciting and amazing ministry. Let us be wise. Let us be prudent. Let us seek the Lord together in prayer. Let us study his word, reason together. At the same time, let's go for it. Okay, life is not that long. And there are only so many opportunities you will come across in your life where you can contribute to something that will last forever. And I don't mean just giving money to a building campaign, I mean all that buildings represent here. What is so glorious is that there is not a day of the week that there is this property is not being used. Some days, extensively, every room. That's what I want to see. I don't want to see just a place that sits there. So, whatever we do, let's strive towards building into things that will last when we're all gone. Because we will die. And it's going to come a lot faster than we think. It could happen tomorrow. It could happen for any one of us today. What have we done that will last for Christ after we are gone? Life is so very short, my dear brothers and sisters. Any fruitful, multiplying ministry you can now give to, participate in, uh, put yourself in. That's where it's at. That's where you ought to be spending your time. We're at a pivot point in our church's life. It's exciting to be at this point. And every church, every place that's ever been fruitful or multiplying or contributed to God's kingdom had different points in its life that were pivot points. We are at a pivot point. And that's exciting. It's daunting, but it's exciting as well. Because the bottom line is, I looked at even, I was consider myself pretty young. Do you know what? These ages that I used to think are old are just not looking so old to me anymore at all. And I think we can all relate with that on whatever level you are. Life is extremely short. We will die. It's by God's authority. It's final. So let's be about the things that will last into eternity. I even think in terms of when I, when I married my wife, uh, not growing up in a Christian home, you know, people married and really their faith wasn't a big deal. They didn't talk a lot about it as long as they got along. And one thing I was determined is I wanted to to marry a believer, a Christian. And the reason being, and this sounds funny and maybe a little bit uh, immature at the time, but I wanted to spend eternity with them. Now, I understood that it wasn't marriage in the same way we have it now in heaven, but whatever we are doing as a married couple has eternal significance, so we're on the same page about that. Our children, the ministries we participate here in the church, we don't work in separate functions. What she does, and I do, is part of one household building for eternity. I couldn't imagine being married to someone who was not going to live eternally with me. I know it's more than just that seemingly selfish reason, but do you understand that life is short and that pick your unions, especially the one you'll marry for those who aren't married yet, to be with someone who will live forever? We die. All of us will. Our perspective on this should be different as believers. But let's consider the second great certainty in our text. The first one, almost no one can disagree with. They may deny it for a time, but the second one is where the debate breaks out, at least in the culture. Judgment comes for everyone. Look at the second part of verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Immediately after death comes judgment. Did you know that a survey done only 10 years ago now revealed that more than four, just like 4.1% Out of every five Americans agree that all will be called before God at Judgment Day to answer for our sins. 4.1 because there was a graduation of questions in there. And they can answer definitely yes, definitely no, and then something in between. But most everybody believed, at least in some form, across the board, that there would be some kind of judgment after death before God. It is as if there is an innate belief in all of us, the heart of every human being, that there is something after this life and that it involves judgment for things done on earth. There are all ways to rationalize this, to say, to actually get yourself to believe, and I can't believe we do this, but we did, and I remember doing it myself at one time, that generally I'm a good person. And if you weigh what I do good from what I weigh to what I do bad, the good outweighs the bad and that will get me in. Now that is so ridiculous when you really think about the sins of omission and commission that we commit and the true depths of wickedness in our hearts that we would ever think that that could be true for any human being, that good would outweigh bad. But even so, what, who is God that can take any amount of bad or sin in his presence? How holy could he be? How just could he really be? So any amounts of sin on my ledger, on my side of the ledger, no matter how much quote-unquote good I've done, never allows me to be in the presence of God or in his judgment. Never. In fact, we know in a general sense, the scripture talks about judgment from the beginning all the way to the end of the book, Uh, the end of its books but please notice that there are different ways the scripture talks about judgment this is a very general uh, reference to just simple judgment that you and i will face there are judgments that are there in the present time on god's people on the nations the end times judgment the ultimate judgment that will come but there's just this basic judgment we all need to be aware of that we are judged immediately upon death passing from death into eternity there is judgment And where we go from there, that's the judgment we're speaking of, and God himself, by his own authority, makes that determination, and it's based completely on who we are in relationship with. Not something we have done, not some great task that has been performed, but who we are in union with, who we are in relationship with. Ecclesiastes says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment, with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Later in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Jesus himself in Matthew 25 says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. The point being, and these are all different references to different aspects of judgment, but please see, no one escapes it. Judgment is sure for every person. 2 Timothy 4.1, Paul writing to this young pastor, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Jesus, judgment, it will come. Your perspective on this totally and utterly depends on who you are standing with. In fact, let's consider just briefly what it would be like standing before God's judgment without Christ. I cannot possibly, I'm not nearly skilled enough to put into words the horror that there is in standing before a holy God without Christ. No words I can come up with can give you the dread, how horrendous it would be, how utterly unspeakable it would be. The worst earthly thoughts you have is far better than what it would be like to stand before before God without Christ. Some have said that the national anthem of hell will be, I did it my way. You'll stand before God. You may not be able to say it, but what you did is what God will judge, your deeds. John Piper said it well in his great book, God's Passion for His Glory. Hell is unspeakably real, conscious, horrible, and eternal. The experience in which God vindicates the worth of his glory in holy wrath on those who would not delight in what is infinitely glorious. That is his son. Thomas Watson wrote, Eternity to the godly is a day that has no sunset. Eternity to the wicked is a night that has no sunrise. If a wicked man seems to have peace at death, it is not from the knowledge of his happiness, but from the ignorance of his danger. Jonathan Edwards in his great sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. By the way, he wrote volumes on this subject of judgment, but that's the sermon we all are probably somewhat familiar with. Listen to parts of his conclusion. And let everyone that is yet out of Christ and hanging over the pit of hell, because that's your state, whether they be old men and women or middle-aged or young people or little children, now hearken to the loud calls of God's word and providence. Later he says, therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation, he said. Let everyone fly out of Sodom, haste, and these are the last words of the sermon, haste and escape for your lives. Look not behind you, escape to the mountain, lest you be consumed. I've not read one modern book on evangelistic preaching that says it the way Edward said it and the way we ought to say it more separation from god is as awful as it can possibly be maybe the only thing worse would be the very second you die and face god without christ standing before god's judgment without christ when we speak of death and judgment and there's dread that's where the dread ought to come but let's consider standing judgment god's judgment with christ As I began the sermon, I cited several events that were disastrous for one party and glorious for the other. Such is the case with death and judgment for the person united to Christ by faith. As horrific and dreadful as it is for the person without Christ, it is as glorious for the one who is united to Christ before God's throne. Richard Baxter, a great writer, said, Rebirth brings us into the kingdom of grace, and death, physical death, into the kingdom of glory. What a different view for the person who is united to Christ, who is clothed by the righteousness of Christ. So I ask you this question, how will you face death and judgment? I'm not asking, please note what I'm not asking. I'm not asking, do you think you'll die? You all know that you will unless Christ comes first. I'm not asking, do you think you will be judged? You will be. The question is, how will you face death and judgment? Can you see that the answer to this question lies with your relationship with one person, Christ, notice verse 28 in the great advocacy of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 28, the closing verse of this chapter. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Christ, our mediator, is here compared with us in a way. We die and are judged. Christ died and was judged. The difference, obviously, is that Christ's judgment was victory. He was righteous. In Christ there was no sin. The punishment and judgment he received was for our sins, not his. In this way, his death and our death are not parallel. John Piper says also on this point, Christ's death utterly transforms our death. Our arrival at the judgment and his arrival at the judgment are not parallel in this way. His rescues us. Do you hear what he's saying? Jesus' arrival at the judgment seat of God rescues us because of his righteousness. In other words, Piper says, the parallel between our life and Christ's life is designed to show how utterly dependent on him we are at every point in our lives and how great he is. He is the strong saving one and we are the weak, desperate ones. And I would submit to you that's the only posture a person can take before God. We are the weak, desperate ones and we throw ourselves upon Christ. And what glory there is in that humble response. And please notice a couple subtleties in our text. In verse 27, you'll notice that it says our death is an appointment with what we deserve. It's an appointment. In verse 28, it says that Christ's death is an offering. Our death is an appointment, but Christ's death is an offering for us. Didn't have to do it, but he offers himself up for us. Another subtlety that I find very uh, deep and insightful. In verse 28, or in verse 27, it says basically refers to all men men man appointed once to die but in verse 28 notice who God saves not all but the many man and then the many Christ dies to bear the sins of many God is sovereign purposeful particular and full of grace Christ has walked through death and judgment on our behalf, and if you trust Christ, your perspective on these two inevitable realities, death and judgment, ought to be radically different from the world's. Let me just say simply, and I don't mean to be insensitive at all, because we will all face things like this, but it's not okay for Christians to be paralyzed by the thought of physical death. It's not okay. Now, it's normal and human to fear the process of dying. I'm not looking forward to it. But the fear of physical death is not to be had by the son or daughter of God. And as you grow in the faith, one of the key indicators of your growth and maturity is how you view death. You know, I've been able to know believers who are older in the faith and older in their years and to see the extreme peace that came over them, looking forward to the time they would then cross over, as it were, to be with their Lord. And I've also seen the person that should have been a lot farther along than they were, terrified by the prospect, yet they claim Christ. And I would just challenge us that every one of us will have some test, something, some event that will happen that will scare us. That's one thing. But to be paralyzed by this is to, in a sense, confess that we don't believe that Christ has gone this road before us and has risen again and has given us his future. You know, the final part of that article I cited uh, in the Kansas City Star, I wrote this as well. Relief from the fear of death comes only when our souls have been made alive. Only one who had defeated death is qualified to guide us. You know, all the wisdom that is out there. I don't want to hear hear from them. I want to hear from the one who defeated death. What good is it if someone who's still in the grave gave you some advice? And if you end up like they ended up, you're still in the grave, right? Well, Jesus does not come into that category. Jesus said, whoever believes in me will not perish but have everlasting life. To believe in Christ, a sinless life, death, and resurrection, is to possess to possess eternal life and to be free from the fear of physical death. New spiritual life carries the guarantee of a new perfected physical body someday. Christ's victory over death allows those who trust in him to say with the Apostle Paul, O oh death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? My dear brothers and sisters, my dear friends, if you don't know Christ, come to him today. He is the only Savior you will die, you will be judged, listen to what the Lord Jesus says, and the only person to defeat death is him, he's the one to listen to. And he says in John 5, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And notice what else Jesus says, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. It is Christ and no one else. A great observation can often be made by pagans when observing Christians. It's funny to hear the way they say it, but it gives us a picture of what is real in the life of the Christian. And there's a Greek uh, historian named Aristides who wrote to one of his friends trying to explain the extraordinary success of Christianity that was taking off in those days. In his letter he wrote this, If any righteous man among the Christians passes from this world, they rejoice and offer thanks to God, and they accompany his body with songs of thanksgiving, as if he were setting out from one place... To another nearby. That's a pagan's look at what we might call a funeral or a memorial service. And by the way, here at Redeemer, if you're in Christ and you die, if I die, we're not going to have a funeral or a memorial service. We're going to have a service that witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what we have. They are times of mourning. That's part of it. But really, in the larger ske- scheme of things, they're a witness to the fact that we believe the resurrection, and this is far from the end. That's the kind of service that we have. In conclusion, I'd say this to you. I love to study famous last words. And what really inspires me are the last words of people who know Christ as they face death. Martin Luther's last words, Our God is the God from whom comes salvation. God is the Lord by whom we escape eternal death. Those are the last words of Martin Luther. John Knox said, Live in Christ, live in Christ, and the flesh need not fear death. John Calvin, Thou, Lord, bruises me. He was very sick toward the end of his life. But I am abundantly satisfied since it is from thy hand. John Owen. I am still in the land of the living, he says, just before he dies. And he says, stop. Change that and say, I'm yet in the land of the dying, but I hope soon to be in the land of the living. And while not on necessarily the same plane as these individuals I mentioned, I remember reading as part of our requirement when I went to Moody Bible Institute about the life of D.L. Moody. And listen to what his last words were. He said, as he was laying in bed, "'Earth recedes, heaven's doors open before me.'" And his son thought he was just having a, a weird dream. And Moody grabbed his arm and said, "'No, this is no dream, Will. It's beautiful. It's like a trance. If this is death, it is sweet. There is no valley here. God is calling me, and I must go.'" Jesus Christ provides us with a glorious outlook on death and judgment, And depending on your relationship with him, that is how you will view it, and that will be your perspective. And I would submit to you one of the greatest witnesses the church can have is just how we view death and judgment. Let's pray. Lord, with the Apostle Paul, we joyfully proclaim, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man or the woman against whom the Lord will not count his or her sin." Lord, make us a people that live radically for Christ, people who do not fear that which is inevitable, people who look forward to seeing their God, knowing they are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. O God, help us to live for your glory. As the years roll over us, may we withdraw our affections from time and those things that are temporary, and feel that in moving through the world, we are moving towards eternity. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.